Have you ever had to deal with someone in your life who is unreliable? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like someone who consistently talks about what they're going to do, but they rarely, if ever, actually do it. I call those people reliably unreliable. Uh, and although I may love them and certainly do as, as a fellow human soul, I've learned that sometimes in life there are simply some people who you cannot always rely on. That's really just a reality of the fallen world that we live in. And I think the longer we live, and especially the more, uh, the more that we experience the lesser nature of humankind, the easier it is for us to become jaded, you know, cynical, often even suspicious of other people and their motives, which isn't good, by the way. That in and of itself can be unhealthy for us. But what is even worse is that we often have a tendency, I think, to project the flawed traits of human beings onto God, right? For instance, if a person grows up with an earthly father who is abusive, it is not uncommon for that person to see God as a heavy-handed, angry authoritarian. Uh, when people grow up without an earthly father present in the home, they will often view God as being distant. Uh, when people grow up in strict religious, legalistic families. They will often view God as a list keeper who's just waiting for you to mess up one of the rules so he can punish you. On the flip side, uh, people who grow up in very socially and morally liberal families where maybe discipline is lacking, they will often see God as a really laid back, sort of easygoing friend who just wants to love everyone without ever actually holding anyone accountable for any kind of sin. And the same is true for a lot of people who have experienced profound rejection in their lives. You will find that they will often view God skeptically. They will commonly struggle with trusting God because we tend to project our human qualities onto God. But listen, God is not like us. God is not flawed, which means if God says that he will do something, then God will. God will do exactly what he has said he will do because that is the true nature of who he is. And yet that doesn't stop us, of course, from very often assigning more weight to the fallibility of men than we do to the infallibility of God. And the result of that is we make choices and decisions often moving forward in life based on the past performances of people rather than on the future promises of God. There's so many people uh, who will not darken the door of a church today because of something someone said or did to them at a church decades ago. There are people who have sworn off marriage because they were married once and there were major failures with their spouse. There are people who have given up on the dreams that God has given them because other people have failed them in pursuit of those dreams. I'll tell you, as my father often says, those are all indictments against man, not God. God is faithful. God is just. God is true. God is trustworthy. God is unwavering. God is unchanging. God is reliable, which means God will do exactly what he said he will do. And so listen. If you're not serving God or his people like you know you could be or should be today, ask yourself why. Is it because of something God said or did to you? Or is it because of something people said or did to you?
If you've stopped striving, stopped working towards something that you believe was supposed to be yours, is it because of something God said or did to you? Or is it because of something people said or did to you? If you've given up on a dream that you know God put in your heart, is it because of something God said or did to you? Or is it because of something people said or did to you? Because look, when a, when a person tells you they will do something, we all know, right? They, they may or may not actually come through. But when God tells us he will do something, God will. God will make good on every promise, on every commitment, on every dream, on every blessing that he's planned for your life. Now, the, the path to getting there, well, that may not look anything like what you thought it would, as we'll see in our story today. But when all is said and done, God will make good on every single word that he's spoken over your life. That's a fact. You, you see, our problem isn't actually with God at all. Our, our problem isn't even with other people, as much as we'd like to believe that it is. Now, our problem is with ourselves because we don't truly believe that God will do what he's promised he will do. And so instead of fully trusting in his word, we hedge our bets on the hopes that other people will come through for us. And listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't trust one another. Of course we should. But our faithfulness to God should have nothing to do with the faithlessness of people. And yet that's exactly what we do sometimes. We put more faith in imperfect people than we do in a perfect God. And then we wonder why we have trouble trusting God when people let us down. It's because we view God in the light of the failures of human beings when instead we should be viewing the failures of human beings in the light of a sovereign and holy God who will accomplish everything that he said he will do in spite of and actually often even through the failures of human beings. Okay? Often God uses our failures for the express purpose of accomplishing his will which means accomplishing his will in our lives is not dependent upon the trustworthiness of other people. No, it is dependent upon the trustworthiness of God. And so the sooner you can accept that God can be trusted to fulfill every single promise and purpose that he's created you for, the sooner you will begin walking in the reality and fullness of that life, regardless of how others may fail you at times in your life. Okay, it all comes down to putting your trust in him in believing that God will do what he said he will do even when others don't. This is a great lesson that we find actually in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Judges as God once again proves his faithfulness to his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. So let's pick up the story right where we left off last week at chapter 4. And we'll begin by reading the first three verses. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth, the Goyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. If you were here last week, 
You know that Ehud, the protagonist of chapter 3, led the Israelites to a stunning victory over their Moabite oppressors, and as a result, Israel was at peace for 80 years. But here at the opening of chapter 4, Ehud has died, and Israel has fallen right back into their old patterns of sin, namely, worshiping Baal, the pagan god of the Canaanites, okay? Uh, Baal worship was the prevalent religion in Canaan at the time, which was a radically perverse fertility cult, all right? Worship of Baal uh, involved performing magic, uh, using mediums to consult the dead, satanic rituals, including what the Canaanites considered to be sacred prostitution. Uh, at times, Baal's followers would sacrifice their own children, their own babies, generally uh, the firstborn of the community, by burning them alive because they believed it would bring them personal prosperity, which God clearly refers to as detestable in Deuteronomy 12.31 and also in Deuteronomy 18, 9, and 10. And as we've discussed in previous chapters, they would even at times consume the flesh and drink the blood of those children. And all of that is in addition to practicing the most obscene ritual acts of sex with temple prostitutes in public. All right, God clearly, very clearly forbade in Scripture His people from participating in the worship of these idols and all of the practices that went along with them. And yet that is exactly what Israel did. They panted once again after the gods of the Canaanites. And so they tried to justify it by practicing what is called syncretism, which is the blending of different religions. So it's not as if they had abandoned their belief in Yahweh. Though they still believed that he had delivered them from Egypt and led them through the wilderness and brought them into Canaan and great, uh, gave them great victory over their enemies, right? So they continued to view Yahweh, the Hebrew God, as the God of power and of might, especially in times of great distress. And yet at the same time, they viewed Baal as the God of prosperity and the God of material blessing in times of peace. And so they participated in these dreadful pagan practices. And so when circumstances were at their best, Israel was at its worst. But because God loved them so much, when Israel was imploding from within, God stepped in and saved them from themselves. Verse 2 says, The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The Lord sold his own people into the hand of the enemy. Now why in the world would God do that to his own people? Well, he did it to save them from themselves. Okay, listen, you don't have to try very hard at all to see the obvious parallels between God's people then and God's people today. How, how we cry out to God with great fidelity to him and we commit our lives solely to him when we find ourselves in the midst of difficult circumstances. And yet when all is well, when we're at peace, when our circumstances all seem to be working in our favor, when we are prosperous and comfortable, how easy is it for us to continue to believe in God, to profess our faith in Christ, yes, but at the same time to pant after the ways of this world. We begin to chase after what the Bible calls mammon, 
material wealth and money, greed, right? Coveting what we do not have. We begin to accept the social and moral sensibilities of popular culture as our own in what we allow ourselves to be entertained by. And how we view sexuality and marriage and gender in what we're willing to concede in the message of the gospel so as not to offend others, right? In how we've become numb to the profound atrocity of abortion in our culture to the point that we hardly even think about it anymore. You see, when we begin to mirror our society to the point that the culture of the church becomes almost indistinguishable from the culture of the world, even though God has called us to be set apart, to be different from the world, there comes a point because of his great love for us that God will actually step in and change our circumstances in order to change our disposition toward our own sin. Because as flawed human beings... Of course, we know at times we can be reliably unreliable when it comes to living out our faith, but thankfully God's faithfulness isn't dependent upon our faithfulness. And so in his great love for us, when we're far from him, he will often step in and change our circumstances. Why? Because he loves us. You see, when, when you are at your worst, God will save you from yourself. This is actually a great act of grace, and we see it all throughout history where God has allowed or at times even caused the church to walk through incredibly difficult circumstances in order to call his people back to a pure fidelity to Christ. It was certainly the case for the church in Germany throughout World War II where God's people who had become quite comfortable and prosperous and far from him before the war were forced to choose to either continue to follow the ways of the world or to forsake their comfort and safety and acceptance in popular culture and with great fidelity to Christ take a stand for his truth and righteousness. And many of those who took that stand, of course, we know paid a great price. Some of them even with their own lives and yet out of that fidelity to Christ, the true church rose up and produced some of the greatest Christian leaders of the modern world. See, at times, what we think is a spiritual attack from the enemy is actually God saving us from ourselves. Right? Which do you think God is more concerned about? You having every material thing that your heart desires, or you having a strong relationship with him, right? So if you chose the latter, you're correct. God is far more concerned in you having a strong relationship with him than he is in you having material wealth, which means if material wealth is getting in the way of your relationship with him, you losing that material wealth is the very best thing that could ever happen to you. It may not feel like the very best thing that ever could happen to you at the time, but it most certainly is. In fact, a lot of what we attribute to the enemy trying to work against us in our lives may actually be God simply trying to save us from ourselves. There are people who idolize materialism. They, they long for material things more than they long for God. So they chase after those material things until they're so burdened by debt that they have to go through a long process of loss. They, they lose houses, 
They lose cars. They lose credit scores and an economic standard of living that they've become used to. And sometimes when you counsel with those folks, you will find that they'll often believe they're being attacked by the enemy because he wants them to be poor when actually God is simply saving them from themselves because invariably they will cry out to God in those times of great loss and come back to him as their first love and their greatest priority and as a result, so many of those very same people will tell you years later that losing all of their stuff was the very best thing that ever happened to them because it brought them closer to God than they'd ever been before and it reordered their priorities in life. Hey, people go through incredibly difficult circumstances in their marriages and they will often say that their marriage is under the attack of the enemy. Well, maybe, maybe it is. But maybe God is simply saving you and your marriage from yourself. And of course, very often those same married couples who stay the course through those trials will come back years later and describe those difficult days as the very best thing that ever happened to their marriage because it drew them closer to each other and closer to God than ever before. Okay, if you're struggling with some tremendously difficult circumstances in your life today, you may be under some kind of attack from the enemy. That is certainly possible. Or God may simply be trying to save you from yourself. And so here's a good indicator uh, for determining which it may be, in case you're wondering, if leading up to these difficult circumstances that you're now facing, you made a decision to pursue God's will for your life like never before. And as soon as you began doing that, as soon as you began following Jesus Christ with radical abandon, all hell broke loose in your life. Well, it's very likely that the enemy is trying to stop you from doing what God has called you to do. Yes. But listen. If leading up to these difficult circumstances that you're now facing, and this will require great honesty with yourself, by the way. If leading up to these difficult circumstances that you're now facing, your life was more focused on other people, on other things, or even on yourself more than it was on God. If you've been pursuing wealth or material things more than you've been pursuing a relationship with Christ. If you've been pursuing an earthly relationship more than you've been pursuing a relationship with Christ. If you've been pursuing personal pleasure more than you've been pursuing a relationship relationship with Christ, right? If you've been pursuing an addiction more than you've been pursuing a relationship with Christ, if you've been pursuing acceptance by the culture you're living in more than you've been pursuing a relationship with Christ, if there is anything in your life that you've been chasing after more than you've been chasing after a relationship with Jesus Christ, and your life is now in a great state of turmoil, what you're experiencing may not be an attack from the enemy at all. It may actually be God simply trying to save you from yourself. And I know that isn't easy to hear. In fact, I don't like to hear it myself in my own life. But it is imperative that we accept the truth and understand it for what it is. Because listen, even when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. 
And often that faithfulness from God comes in the form of difficulty and trials in our lives in order to save us from our own destructive choices and habits. Why? Because he loves us too much to sit back and watch us destroy our own lives. This is exactly what was happening with the Israelites in our story. So God sells them into the hand of the enemy. Why? Because he loved them and he was willing to do whatever it would take to save them from themselves. Let's keep reading verses 4 through 10. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So the next judge we're introduced to is Deborah. She was unique among the judges for several reasons. First of all, she was a prophetess, Samuel being the only other prophetic voice among the judges, and of course he comes later after this book. Uh, Second, she was already judging Israel at the time this story occurred, whereas the other judges were typically raised up at a specific point in history for the sole purpose of delivering Israel from their oppressors. Third, she was judging Israel in a a civil and legal capacity rather than in a military capacity. Fourth being, of course, the fact that she was the only female in the company of the judges. And fifth and finally, she was clearly the most godly of all the judges. She would consistently point people to God through her words and through her actions, away from herself, right back to God, unlike so many of the other judges that we see throughout this book. And and by the way, we're going to learn a lot more about Deborah next week when we dive into chapter 5, which will be perfectly appropriate for Mother's Day. For now, we'll stick with the story as Deborah calls for Barak, a man who is clearly a leader of the armies of Israel, And she asks him why he hasn't already done what God called him to do, namely to gather 10,000 Israelites to go up against their enemies to gain freedom from those who were oppressing them. And Barak's response is quite telling in terms of his faith. He says to Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. In other words, I'm scared to death to face our enemies as God has commanded me. That's why I haven't done it yet. And so I want you to go with me, which is a fairly clear indication that Barak had more faith in Deborah than he did in God. Right? Part of the command by God to Barak was, I will give him into your hand. In other words, God is promising Barak the victory. Barak's response to that is, well, if Deborah will not go with me, then I will not go. 
This is a tremendous lack of faith on Barak's part, but Deborah understands that God's faithfulness to do what he has said he will do is not dependent upon Barak's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. She knows that God will give them victory just as he's promised he would, no matter how faithless or frightened or unreliable Barak may be. And so she says, yes, of course, I'll go up with you if that will cause you to do what God has already commanded you to do. And by the way, before we uh, jump on Barak's case too hard. It's probably worth noting here that Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, was the most powerful king in all of Canaan at the time, uh, where Jericho, for instance, had about 1,500 residents and covered about a 10-acre site of ground. Hazor had about 40,000 residents and covered a 200-acre site. And so Jabin commanded respect not only in this largest city, but indeed all throughout Canaan. And because of its sheer size, Jabin had the resources to provide for himself the very finest military. And so he hires a man named Sisera, a foreign mercenary, to lead this very powerful war machine. Uh, Sisera is a non-Semitic name. It's definitely foreign uh, to Canaan. And so he was an outsider brought in as a military leader for Jabin. Sisera was most likely a Hittite name of Anatolian descent. And in the ancient world, a suzerain, right, a, a, a feudal overlord such as Jabin, would very commonly reward a vassal like Sisera, a property holding, in exchange for his services. And so in this case, the land of Heresheth Hagoyim may well have been a land grant from Jabin to Sisera for leading his army. And what an army it was, by the way. Sisera had 900 iron chariots at his disposal. The chariot, of course, being the ancient equivalent of a battle tank today, which also happened to be a military technology that the Israelites did not have. And so, listen, if not justifiable... Barak's fear of war with Sisera was certainly understandable. And so he does not want to go to war. Yet it seems he cannot escape it as Deborah calls him out for his reluctance to, to do what God had already called him to do. And interestingly, a part of that calling by God, he says to Barak, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. In other words, I know you're afraid... But listen, this is a battle that you need to fight. And so I'm going to draw out your enemy before you. I'm going to bring the fight to you. And look, it's the same for God's people today. If you're avoiding a battle in your life right now, a battle that you know you need to fight, right, when you're too afraid to face the fight, God will bring the fight to you. Not because he wants you to be harmed but because he wants you to be free. Okay, whether Barak wanted to fight or not, God was going to bring the fight to him. Why? Because it was the only way the Israelites would finally experience freedom from their oppression. And likewise, some of you are facing some things in your life right now, and the only way you're ever going to be truly free is to face the battle and get in the fight. Right? You, you can't fix your marriage by avoiding the conflict. You can't beat that addiction by pretending it doesn't exist. You can't have 
peace without facing your fears. You, you can't control your finances if you don't confront your idols. You can't receive forgiveness if you don't confess your sins. You cannot have a victory without a battle. It's a simple fact for the Christian life. There are some battles that God wants you to fight. Battles that you know you need to fight because it's the only pathway to freedom. But look, if you keep avoiding that fight, God will eventually bring the fight to you. Why? Because he loves you too much to sit back and watch you live under that bondage for the rest of your life. This is what was happening with Israel. This was a battle they were going to have to fight if they were ever going to experience freedom. Look, God knew it, Deborah knew it, and Barak was finally getting it. I'm telling you, we need to get this too. There are some battles that we must be willing to fight if we're going to experience victory in these areas of our lives that we have allowed to run amok. Sometimes there's no other way but to turn and face the fight because listen, you cannot have a victory without a battle. And so as commanded by God, Barak gathers the men at Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor was a conical shaped mountain rising over 1300 feet above the northeastern corner of the Estrelon Valley. It was an unavoidably prominent landmark. So none of the Israelites could have mistakenly missed the meeting place. And so they're finally coming together at this mountain as a seemingly overwhelming enemy was gathering for war at the river Kishon. Let's, let's see what happens next. Verses 11 through 16. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth to Goyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth the Goyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. You can't have a victory without a battle. And yet even at the brink of an inevitable war, we find Deborah having to push Barak into the fight. Deborah says to Barak, up. In other words, get up. Quit avoiding the fight, Barak. It's time, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. It is time for you to go. Besides, does not the Lord go out before you? Okay, when there is a battle, looming in our lives that we know we must fight. God isn't going to send you into that fight alone. No, listen, when it's time for you to go, God will go before you. Notice when Barak and the Israelites finally engage in the battle, verse 15 says, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army when? Before 
Barak by the edge of the sword. You see, as frightening as the battle that you're facing may be today, and as unreliable or unfaithful as others may be in your life in helping you in that fight, I mean, Deborah practically had to pick Barak up and roll him down the side of that mountain just to get him into the fight. But thankfully, God's faithfulness to go before us isn't dependent upon the reliability or the faithfulness of others. Because God is faithful even when we are not. So go ahead and get in the fight because God is going before you and he will rout the enemy before you. That's what he does when he calls his people into battle. He goes before us. Second Chronicles 20:15, when a great multitude of Moabites and Ammonites came against Judah. Judah is scared to death. They are afraid to engage in the battle until the Lord speaks through Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, and says, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Do you see? When we're facing a fight, a battle in our lives, the biggest obstacle isn't our adversary. It isn't the conflict that we're facing. It, it isn't that addiction. It isn't our fears. It isn't our idols. In fact, it isn't even our sin in and of itself. Because listen, once we engage in the battle, God goes before us and does what we cannot do. He brings resolution to conflict. He brings freedom from that addiction. He brings peace in the midst of our fears. He tears down our idols and he washes away all of our sin. You see, the biggest obstacle that we face isn't our adversary. No, the biggest obstacle that we face when it's time to engage in a fight is right here. It's inside of us. See, at times we're our own worst enemy because we're the only ones who can keep ourselves out of a fight. Even when God brings the fight to us, when we refuse to get up and go out and engage in the fight, we can miss out on the freedom and victory and forgiveness that could be ours. But when we submit ourselves to Christ in humble obedience and repentance and we get into the fight, we confront that adversary, then God goes before us. Remember, you cannot have a victory without a battle. We talked about it last week, the fact that God created us to fight great battles. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of our spiritual DNA. There are simply some battles that we were meant to engage in in this life. And when we get in the fight, God goes before us. Why? Because he loves us too much to sit back and watch us fight our battles alone. He goes before us. He assures us, in fact, ultimate victory. It may not come immediately. It may not come the way we wanted it to or thought that it would. But listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, 
And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I guess he did. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And so in this last section of the story, we're introduced to another fascinating character that we know little about. Uh, Sisera jumps off of his chariot and runs away. He comes to the tent of a Bedouin family. They were Kenites who were at peace uh, with Jabin, the enemy king, or so they thought. And knowing that, of course, Sisera runs to the tent of this Kenite woman, uh, Jael, and her husband, Heber, who is apparently not home at the moment. And she comes out to meet him, seeing that he's fleeing from the battle and obviously in distress. And so she takes him into her tent. Now, the name uh, Jael, or Yael, as it is in the ancient Hebrew, means wild. It can also be used to mean mountain goat. And if you're at all familiar with the habitat and habits of mountain goats, we had them all over in Alaska, then you know that they are both wild and extremely crafty and extremely agile animals who are able to survive in the very harshest of environments. I think it is clearly a very fitting name for this Bedouin woman. The truth is, Sisera, this battle-hardened mercenary, had no idea what he was getting himself into when he fled from the battlefield into her tent. He went from the frying pan into the fire. First of all, she goes out to greet him and invites him into her tent, as was custom in ancient Near Eastern uh, desert culture. In fact, hospitality was a matter of the highest honor for desert Bedouin cultures and uh, actually one of the most strictly adhered to obligations for Hebrews as well, uh, generally speaking. And then after reassuring him that he need not fear, she covers him with a rug or a heavy blanket, which not only conceals him to set his mind at ease, uh, but would have also aided in making him sleepy. And then interestingly enough, when he asks her for a drink of water, she gives him milk. And being a desert Bedouin, that would have been goat milk, which in certain forms is known to induce drowsiness. So again, she offers him great hospitality while clearly lulling him to sleep and then after he's sound asleep she takes a tent peg and a hammer which jail would have been highly skilled in using because in ancient near eastern uh, bedouin cultures it was always the woman's job to attend to everything associated with the tent including making them uh, pitching them and striking the tents when they moved from one area to the other so jail certainly knew her way around a hammer and a tent peg, and so she drives the tent peg through Sisera's temple, literally nailing his head to the ground, and then she calmly goes back outside to let Barak know, who's looking for Sisera, that she has in fact dispatched the leader of the enemy armies. 
it's a fascinating story in and of itself, and yet in that moment, it must have struck a chord in Barak who would have remembered Deborah saying that the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of the woman. And of course, when Deborah said that, he probably thought she was referring to herself, but here is Barak having to face the reality that if it wasn't for a woman, the battle would never have started, and if it wasn't for a different woman, the battle may never have ended, right? If Sisera had escaped, he could have mustered more troops and attacked the Israelites at a later time, and even as it was, with the battle decisively won by the Israelites and the enemy general killed, the Israelites still weren't finished with Jabin. Verse 24 says, The hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. You see, it's not just about, uh, it's not just about engaging in the battles that we know we must engage in. It's also about seeing them all the way through to the end. Because listen, when you refuse to give up, God will see you through. Even when other people fail you, God will see you through. Even when the odds are completely against you, God will see you through. Even if it seems you've no fight left in you, God will see you through. Look, even if it seems the fight will never end, God will see you through because God is faithful even when people are not. So don't give up. Don't give in and don't walk away from the fight until the conflict is resolved, until the addiction is beaten, until that fear is overcome, until the idols are destroyed, until the provision has been made and you are free from whatever has been keeping you from moving forward with your life in Christ. God is faithful. God is just, God is true, God is trustworthy. God is unwavering, God is unchanging. Listen, God is reliable, which means he will do exactly what he said he will do. And that also means as long as you are directly engaged in what he is doing, and he will see you all the way through it. Why? Because he loves you too much to sit back and do nothing while you struggle. No, God is with you every single step of the way. So listen, if you're not serving God or his people like you know you could be or should be, ask yourself why. Is it because of something God said or did to you or is it because of something people said or did to you? If you stop striving, stop working towards something that you believe was supposed to be yours, is it because of something God said or did to you? Or is it because of something people said or did to you? If you've given up on a dream that you know God put in your heart, is it because of something God said or did to you? Or is it because of something that people said? Or did to you. Because I'm telling you, God will make good on every single promise, on every commitment, on every dream, on every blessing that He's planned for your life. So, why? Why do we refuse to receive what God has planned for our lives? Is it fear? 
Is it resentment or disbelief over the things that other people have said and done to us? Because look, those things that other people say and do have absolutely no effect on what God has said or on what God can do. Our faithfulness to God should have nothing to do with the faithlessness of people. Because our faithfulness to him should be based on what he has said and done, not on what others say or do. Okay? When people say they will do something, they may or may not. We all know that, right? That is simply a reality. That is a reality of living in the fallen world that we're living in. But please listen to me. There is another reality one that is not dependent upon the ever-shifting social and moral and political and ethical moorings of our culture, one that is not dependent upon the reliability of imperfect people, one that is not even dependent upon our own faithfulness. And that is the reality, that if God has said he will do something in your life, then God will. Let's pray.